Forget calling home. Did ET just meet the business end of the U.S. Sidewinder missile? Plus, how does the war in Ukraine end? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the Right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Philip Phil Klein, and the sage of authenticity woods. Jim Garrity, you are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Tommy John and Moink. More about them in due course. For some reason, you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way. You can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim Garrity, we have been waiting a long time, our entire lifetimes, in fact, to get a plausible non-grocery store tabloid headline saying that the U.S. government has shot down unidentified flying objects over the United States. And lo and behold, the headlines are finally here. Yeah. And I suppose some people would conclude that the clearest evidence for the existence of extraterrestrial life and the fact that the U.S. government knows about it and has contact with it and probably does have alien bodies from the crash at Roswell was the fact that White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre assured the public there was nothing alien about this. Um, this in a strange way, if these were aliens, it would be more reassuring uh, because otherwise it means that the Chinese military uh, or conceivably some other military, but it seems very likely this is the Chinese, uh, in addition to the spy balloon, had multiple uh, you know, objects that were able to penetrate U.S. airspace and to get all the way down to Michigan on Super Bowl Sunday. The other one was over Alaska. The other one was over Canada. And there's a reason I think this has really resonated with people in a way that most things don't. I'm not going to compare this to, to 9-11. This is not a you know terrible, life-threatening disaster, outrage, or tragedy. But we are Americans who are used to having two oceans that keep us at a distance from most of the problems in the other hemisphere. And we, you know, since the 50s, we've had NORAD and we've had this idea that we, you know, our skies belong to us. Nobody can come in here and do stuff we don't want them to. And about two, you know, a week or so ago, we figured out, no, that's not the case. In fact, China can send stuff over here. And I still kind of wonder that if the Billings Gazette had not taken that photo, whether the administration would have reacted uh, the way it did, or whether they would have preferred to play it cool. It certainly sounds like in the aftermath of the shoot down of that Chinese spy balloon after the off the coast of South Carolina, they uh, NORAD has been adjusting its uh, radars and other air defense technologies to try to detect slow moving objects like the uh, balloon, and that's what caused the detection of these three subsequent creatures, uh, th three three subsequent objects <laughs> left with this. Yeah, creatures. Now people are going to say it's dragons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what do you um, know that we don't, Jim? <laughs> yeah. So we're now in a situation where you know perhaps this is happening. One of two things: either this happens all the time. And the government just has not mentioned it. We haven't been sending fighters up against everything that's up there. Or this doesn't happen all the time. And some, you know, this is China or somebody else saying, oh, you shot down that balloon? Let's see if how you do against this one. Let's see if you can detect that one. Let's put them around uh, the, air, the, uh, the level of, of air, air, airplane uh, flights and stuff like that. Um, our our soon-to-be colleague Noah Rothman over in commentary said this was felt like a uh, somewhat akin to the Sputnik moment. Now, there's no perfect comparison between two historical things, but we're used to believing that our military and our ability to protect the homeland is as good as our, what, trillion-dollar defense bu budget can buy? And now we find out, no, actually it's not. And the head of NORAD said that there were some significant gaps in there. I also note that as much as I appreciated the uh, the briefing from John Kirby and various other statements from military officials over the last few days, the president of the United States has said roughly one sentence about this since the entire crisis began. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so in terms of Corinne John Pierre, that that uh, that statement she made, you're so right. It just feels like the opening yeah. of a, a bad movie where you have this. Uh, dishonest, you know, not because she's necessarily a dishonest person, but it's, it's inherent to the job, especially in this administration, bumbling press secretary saying, you know what, uh, we, there, there's no extraterrestrial life associated with these unidentified flying objects, or you know what, the, the zombie outbreak at this hospital is totally cont contained, or you know what, the asteroid's going to miss the Earth, you know, <laughs> and, and on and on. But Phil, I guess I have a, a slightly different take 
then Jim, it feels to me, and we need to learn more, and uh, if the facts contradict me, I'm, I'm happy to admit it, but uh, it feels to me like we totally blew the Chinese spy balloon, right? We should have clearly shot it down over the uh, Aleutians or Montana, failing that, and not waited until the Atlantic, and the, the administration was embarrassed and uh, stung by it, and then you had NORAD uh, finally making this ad adjustment in their um, radar capabilities, which I don't understand. They say that they didn't detect past such objects, but they'd get told about them by the intelligence agencies after the fact, which I don't understand why you wouldn't make the adjustments then, right? The CIA or whoever's telling you, oh, this balloon flew over the whole United States and you didn't know about it, you, you should make sure that that doesn't happen again. And apparently that, that didn't happen. But it feels to me as though now we're just shooting down random stuff. Maybe this is all uh, Chinese, uh, other forms of Chinese or Russian spy balloons or whatever, but we don't know what, what these things are. Um, they're, they're not maneuverable. They don't have the characteristics of, of the actual spy balloon we let complete its mission. So it feels to me we blew the spy balloon and now the U.S. government is engaged in a, a classic kind of after-the-fact overreaction. Yeah, I kind of feel like if this were an alien invasion movie that basically we'd be in the middle of Act One and essentially we'd be all excited that we're able to just shoot down all of their objects and then it turns out that these were just the probes that they were sending mm -hmm. And at the end yeah, and you see the whole sky is yeah. blackened with the with the uh, advent of the real force. Yeah, the mother ship's going to arrive. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I think the most pl plausible thing explanation is a combo of what you say about how they're trying to basically cover for what happened. And also, to me, it seems like the, the sort of strategic vagueness over what actually is going on. They know that the press and everyone won't be able to resist the whole UFO headline. And so it will devolve into sort of a more humorous jokes about little green men coming. And we it will distract from the idea that we may be having regular incursions of U.S. Uh, airspace by the Chinese, which is a much more alarming thing. And um, I, I think it's quite possible they know that these balloons or whatever these objects are, are Chinese in origin, but they, they kind of like the, the sort of alien speculation and, and sort of, I mean, even if you say we don't think they're aliens, like that's obviously a headline. So mm -hmm. there's no indication they're aliens. Yeah. So everyone's just going to be talking about aliens instead of, you know, oh, my God, like, look at the Chinese. Like, they've just been sending all this stuff. And how long has this been going on? Were all these reports of the um, unidentified aerial phenomena that have been going back over the past 10 years, are those all Chinese too? Uh, because at the time, there, I mean, there was also – these you know, comments, like, we don't know what's keeping these things aloft, right? And, and they have various features that aren't known to any, you know, earth, you know, objects that, that fly. And so we don't know what it could be. Uh, so it, it to me, I, I just wonder how much of the these various reports and these sightings that pilots had and these videos that were being released over the past decade are sort of related to whatever this is. So, Charlie, the, the spy balloon is bad. We should care about violations of our airspace, obviously, but it's not the worst thing the Chinese have done. They've undertaken this, unfortunately, highly successful decades-long effort to steal every secret in the United States, whether it's a military or industrial. They've been developing their nuclear weapons program apace. There's a story just the other day, they passed us in ICBM launchers, but there's something about the balloon that's just kind of captured people's attention. You know, it's it's uh, telegenic. Uh, it, uh, it's kind of funny and ridiculous at a, a certain level. So it's kind of made for water cooler uh, talk. Uh, so th this has crystallized the, the Chinese threat, even though it's not the most important aspect of it. Well, as Jim said, channeling Noah Rothman, 
This is Sputnik. We can see it. You can read about espionage. You can read about the development of technology, nuclear weapons, rockets. But when you see it, it's different. I don't think this is, of course, the same in geopolitical terms as Sputnik was, and it certainly caused less panic and more mirth. But there's a difference between the abstract and the concrete. I also think that this is more threatening in one important sense. The, the Chinese steal a great deal from us, and this is a problem. It's a problem militarily. It's a problem economically. Clearly, military technologies that are copied, if they work, are just as deadly as those that were developed in-house. But the reliance that you see in China on espionage and theft is, at one level, a sign of weakness. The United States has an advantage over China and everywhere else in that it is the most innovative nation. This is partly the product of our economy, it's partly our national culture, it's partly immigration. We make stuff. We invent stuff. You do not want to be, in the long run, a nation that copies. You want to be a nation that creates. And then suddenly the balloon is up there. And it's not our ideas being sent back to China. It's not theoretical. It's real. Suddenly, however they got there, you see this thing in the sky and you think, wow, that that could be carrying a lot more than a transmitter and a camera and some solar panels. Uh, the Chinese probably don't want to do this, but that could have been carrying an EMP. That could have been carrying radioactive material. It could have been carrying bombs. And that brings it into focus and I think reminds us that whatever advantages we have, if the Chinese are capable of doing this, then that's what really matters. Tim Garrity, next question to you. The Chinese spy balloon represents a major inflection point in a relationship with China, yes or no? It should, but it was just a few months ago that there was talk in the Biden foreign policy community about a new taunt with China. And we put all those, uh, you know, big disputes behind us. Because look, I mean, Rich, we remember we got to the bottom of the origin of COVID-19, right? And, and China was held accountable for spreading the disease and the world came together. Who got to do the full, right, right? You know, um, people are always going to be looking for, hey, it's not that bad, this conflict with China. They, they want to be friends. Let's trust them again. Uh, so it should be, but I think those instincts were, are not quite dead. So we got to know. Phil Klein. Uh, no, I think that it's a sort of, I think COVID was a major inflection point. I think that this is an inflection point, but not a major inflection point. Okay, we have another no. Charlie Cook? Yeah, I'm going with minor inflection point as well. Yeah, I'll go, go minor and, to Jim's point, perhaps soon for, forgotten inflection point. It, it, uh, I, I think we, we've, we've had inflection points, and the relationship is, has, has definitely changed, not, not as much as it should. But we're getting there. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode, Tommy John. Is it weird to give underwear on Valentine's Day? No, it's weird to give bad underwear on Valentine's Day. Pamper your partner's posterior with Tommy John. When you and your favorite person are wearing Tommy John, you're that much more comfortable so you can do everything better. From Tommy John's incredibly soft, breathable underwear to playful Valentine's Day pajamas and limited editions, 98% of men and women love Valentine's gifts. From Tommy John, thanks to dozens of comfort innovations like soft tri-blend and micromodal fabrics with four-way stretch, Tommy John helps you feel the love all year long. That's why Tommy John doesn't just have customers, they have fanatics. And with over 20 million pairs sold, it's easy to see why. Plus, there's no risk because every gift is backed by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or it's free. Guarantee, get 20% off your first purchase at tommyjohn.com editors right now for Valentine's Day. Hurry to tommyjohn.com editors for 20% off tommyjohn.com. Slash editors, see the site for 
details. So let's do just to exit question addressing the Nikki Haley announcement video this morning. No respect to Nikki Haley. We, but we've talked about her nascent campaign uh, already a fair amount on this podcast. Plus, we're in this kind of uh, interim space here where she's done her announcement video, but she's not doing her event until tomorrow, which is Wednesday. So no respect to Nikki. I, I hope she's not going to be angry at her staff. Why did I just get an exit question after my announcement video on the editor's podcast? But that's the way it's going to be. Phil Klein, rate the Nikki Haley announcement video from zero. Ah, man, totally fell flat to 10. She's definitely the nominee after this three minute and I think 33 second announcement video. Uh, I would say maybe a six. I mean, it's a, it's perfectly finely executed video, but it's also something that you have plenty of time and control over, which isn't the, the case with the rest of the, the race. So I wouldn't say it changes anything at all, um, but it was, for what it was, perfectly finely executed. Charlie Cook? Um, I watched it twice. I I think, well, I think there are some good parts and some bad parts i think probably the likely insurmountable problem is that unless something magical breaks her way i don't think she's going to take off and as a result the problem is the product not the marketing that the product itself i it reminded me in one sense of marco rubio's videos which were about him and I don't know if that's what this election is going to be about. I don't know if character stories are going to occupy a great role. Um, I think it was fine. I, I, I think it was the video of an also ran. Mm-hmm. What I think. So what's your number? I think it's a five. It was competent. There were no big mistakes. She, does have a good story. I like hearing about it. I like to see its defense of American ideals, but I don't see anything in there that is especially compelling. All right. So we've got a wide range of answers, Jim, ranging all the way from a five to a six. Where do you come down? <laughs> well, okay. The video simply itself, just, just that of, hi, this is who I am. This is why I'm running for mm-hmm. president. I'd give it about an eight. I, I, it's it's eight or nine. It's, it's perfectly fine. It, it really does. Wow. It's a Whoa. perfectly fine introduction to her. The overall campaign, I think, is much more in that five, six, seven range. Um, and this, the kind of, this is a cur- already an, we're early in this cycle, and already it is a curse, and that we are seeing one Republican after another that I like a great deal: Nikki Haley, Chris Sununu, Tim Scott, all say that they're interested in running for president. And running the risk of another, you know, 10-car pileup in which a whole bunch of non-Trump Republicans are all, you know, taking swings at each other, knocking each other out, attacking each other. Ron DeSantis is likely to get in there, too. Uh, And leaving Trump in a situation where he can win with the largest plurality of the nomination, repeating history all over again. Um, So I I like these, these folks a lot. I fully expect to be among the very first time, among the very first to say, all right, it's great. You're not hitting, you're not catching fire. Time to get out. Um, I'll be among the very first to be telling them to do that. Yeah. So basically where, where Jim is and, and I, I'm not just sucking up to you, Jim, in hopes to getting, getting you to pick something by me for your editor's pick. Um, These these are honest agreements, but it was a, it was a good video. I mean, it's hard to see how she could have done a better video. It uh, highlighted the, uh, winsome aspects of her, inspiring aspects of her uh, story. It pushed back against people who need need pushing back against, while not being you know overly combative or off-putting. And uh, I thought it was important there that she said, you know, we've Republicans have lost popular vote in seven out of the eight last presidential elections, and that needs to end. I think that's uh, an important emphasis. So the video was great. It was an eight or nine, but wow. you know, you just. Gotta have you and uh, 
Jim as my professors going forward. <laughs> great, a little great inflation there. But in terms of the campaign, the likely campaign, you know, we, we, we kind of monitor web traffic and look at various indicators. This is, uh, you know, it's early days. It's just videos out there a couple uh, hours. She hasn't done her event yet. But there's, there's not a huge appetite or much excitement. Um, it, it was a very conventional uh, message for the most part, that uh, video, and it's likely to be a very conventional campaign. And while there should be some appetite for that compared to the zaniness we've seen from Trump and his acolytes that have lost two national elections for Republicans unnecessarily, there's, there's not going to be um, a market for a total return to that kind of conventional approach. So she'll, she'll really need lightning strike, uh, to strike to, uh, to make this campaign uh, work. But the video, the video is great. So with that, let's go to our second sponsor of this episode, Moink. Charlie, over to you. Well, 60% of U.S. pork production comes from one company, and that company, like the balloon, is owned by the Chinese. And the hogs that this company sells are given something called ractopamine, which is banned in 160 countries, including China. Yet you find it in your grocery aisle in the United States every day. But there is a better way. And as a result, I would like to tell you about Moink. Now, you all know I love Moink. I love Moink more than Sarah Schutte ever could. And that's because Moink delivers. <laughs> that's Sarah. <laughs> it's because Moink I love delivers. the trash talk in, in the middle of the Moink reads. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. That's right, you get a box. comes in the mail on ice. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did. Moink meat tastes like it should because the family farm does it better. The difference is a difference you can taste. And in addition to being so tasty... You can feel good knowing that you're helping family farms stay financially independent as well. Now, you get some say in what gets delivered to your door. This is not one size fits all. You choose between ribeyes, chicken breasts, pork chops, salmon fillets, and much more. And you can cancel any time, but you won't want to. Shark Tank host Kevin O'Leary called Moink's bacon the best bacon he's ever tasted. I think my five-year-old agrees. And Ring doorbell founder Jamie Simonoff jumped at the chance to invest in Moink. And you too can invest in Moink. At least you can invest in getting their boxes sent to your door by signing up at moinkbox.com slash editors. And if you do, listeners of this show will get free filet mignon in every single order for a year. That's one year of the best filet mignon you'll ever taste, but for a limited time only. You've got to go right now to moinkbox.com M-O-I-N-K box.com forward slash editors. Thank you very much, Charlie. We all love Moink. So Jim Garrity, in your morning jolt today, Tuesday morning here, you wrote about this report that uh, Joe Biden, despite in the State of the Union, uh, saying that we are going to back Ukraine for as long as it takes, a, uh, a sentiment he's expressed at, at various times and in various ways. In fact, consistently throughout the entirety of this war, privately, the Biden administration is telling the Ukrainians, hey, uh, look, guys, you know, you got, you got a shot here to tur turn things around or, or convince the Russians to, to leave or have a decisive victory, but we can't support you forever. Yeah, uh, I'm growing increasingly frustrated with President Biden's policy towards Ukraine. Uh, from the beginning, I, I recognize that uh, colleagues like Michael Brennan Doherty make worthwhile uh, expressions of concern about long-term U.S. commitments and the cost of the war. Phil has expressed the fact that we are not made of money and that we are drawing down some of our defense stocks, etc., but in the end, this is Russian aggression. This is unilaterally launching the biggest land war in Europe since World War II. And if we don't stand up to Russia here, then we're probably going to be dealing with Russian aggression somewhere else in the not too distant future. Um, but as I've laid out in, the, in several jolts of the last couple of weeks, we have we keep doing this dosi -si do with Ukraine. Ukraine will say we desperately need this particular weapon system, and Biden and his top defense advisors will look at the issue and say, no, no, you don't, you don't, you'll be fine without it. And then several months pass, and many Ukrainians die. And then the Biden administration will say, oh, well, actually, wait a second. Actually, maybe we do. Yeah, yeah, I guess we will send it. 
Um, the tanks, the M1A1 Abrams tanks, are on their way to Ukraine. Good news, fellas. It'll be there probably within two years. So look out, Russia, in 2025. We're going to get you. Um, we've been through this with the MiG-29s of your European allies. We've been through this with the uh, Patriot missile batteries. We've been through this with the tanks. And apparently, nobody believes that we're not sending them F-16s either at the Pentagon uh, or, or over in the UK, which just agreed to train Ukrainian pilots on Western uh, jet fighters. We're probably going to, there's also another long range artillery system that Ukraine is asking for and that Biden is saying no to. Look, either you want to win the war or you don't. At this point, if you keep giving them, if you keep hemming and hawing over every decision and you keep sending off the aid in dribs and drabs, you end up extending the war, but you do not necessarily help them win the war. And from the very beginning, Biden has been, I, I think, in conflict between two contrary goals. On the one hand, Biden wants Ukraine to win the war. On the other hand, Biden regrets that the war even began at all. Remember, he was okay with a minor incursion and that he really wants this war to just end one way or the other. At some point, you have to pick one. And in fact, I think we're long overdue for the Biden administration to pick one. So we're now in this state where he goes up in the State of the Union, he salutes the Ukrainian ambassador, we'll be with you as long as it takes. And now a week later, when we said as long as it takes, we didn't really mean forever. We just mean, you know, it's, there's always an asterisk. He just says whatever he wants to say. This man cannot remain in power. And then, you know, oh, never mind. He didn't really mean that. Never mind. You know, he, he just blurts out whatever's in his mind. So, Jim, you you quoted um, from a, a news report, I think, in the Washington Post, a, a an official explaining this. And what he or she said is, a quote, as long as it takes pertains to the amount of conflict. It doesn't pertain to the amount of assistance, which I'm still... I'm still trying to figure that one yeah. out. I, I gotta, I gotta sit down and kind of diagram those. You know, those as couple long of as it takes, or it's not. Right? Yeah. So the binary thing. So Phil, that that said, I have I have some sympathy for the administration's position here. I would think you want to communicate to the Russians: look, we're not going away, and uh, you're not going to prevail. Uh, we're going to stymie you, and we need you to settle for a quarter of, of a loaf and sit down and have a negotiation. But at the same time, privately, it's not great that it leaks, but I guess that's that's inevitable. We need to be telling the Ukrainians, you know, guys, this this conflict is really bad for everyone, and we're going to need you to settle for uh, um, something short of, of total victory. And I've gone back and forth. You know, I thought the Ukrainians were going to get swept aside in the first week of the war as soon as the Russian troops landed at that airfield uh, outside of Kiev. Uh, thank God and good for the Ukrainians. They uh, um, pushed the, the Russians back. They destroyed that column that was he heading towards Kiev. They, they've uh, scored amazing victories over the last year. But it's just kind of hard to, to see how they win ultimately because the Russians aren't going away. And even if this, this latest offensive that is brewing here may, may already be starting as we speak fails, you know, you can just call up more troops and and keep at it. Or maybe you have a temporary armistice and just retool if you're Russia and, and then come back at it again. So it's hard to see how uh, Ukraine gets any full and final victory short of Vladimir Putin falling, which obviously is a very, very remote possibility. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, I mean, where I am on this is I share a lot of the, I'm very sympathetic to the view of the need to support Ukraine to um, make this difficult for Russia to send a, to not only take a stand about Russia, but to send um, a message to other adversaries in the world, particularly in China, that there's a high cost to invading other countries, and it's not something that um, you should expect for everyone to just sort of stand down over. And there, there are legitimate good arguments for supporting Ukraine. Um, I'm certainly not, uh, you know, in any way uh, illusioned about Putin and his ambitions. I, I don't think this somehow could have been prevented if we just said Ukraine's never going to join NATO, and, and that would have somehow resolved and prevented the whole conflict. I think those who suggest that are, are just deluding themselves and, and everyone who's listening to them. Um, but with that said, I, I think that um, it's fair to just act, ask some skeptical questions about what's going on, how open-ended is our commitment. When we say whatever it takes, does that say... We're already 
have spent over $100 billion in the first year of the war? Is this $100 billion a year in perpetuity? What are we doing by supporting Ukraine? Um, if we think, if it's unrealistic to think that somehow um, Russia is going to be defeated, that they're going to be driven back to Russia from all areas of Ukraine, uh, and they're never going to come back in. So at some point, there's going to have to be uh, some sort of negotiation. And the, the fear that I have is that by constantly giving aid to Ukraine and signaling that our commitment is open-ended, that you, you sort of extend things even though we end up at the same result, which is some sort of negotiated settlement. Uh, so that is sort of my fear, because in the meantime, it's not only costing us money, it's devastating the Ukrainian uh, economy, leading to massive amounts of death. Uh, and clearly, the, the war in Ukraine means a lot more to Russia. They're willing to bear costs. Um, and Russia could... Sit, could keep going for a long time because it's not their economy that's being destroyed. It's not their infrastructure that's being leveled um, as long as this war goes on. And there are simply a lot more Russians than there are Ukrainians. Yeah, so Charlie, I would add, add a couple more things. Uh, Christopher Caldwell, who writes for us occasionally, is with the Claremont Institute, brilliant, just a, a brilliant guy, and very much a Ukraine dove, had a piece in the New York Times the other day, where I think, you know, make, makes good points about, you know, you could, could be on the slippery slope to forms of direct Western involvement, and maybe we're already there with the in, intelligence and satellite information we're, we're sharing and whatnot. But I think the, the least convincing parts of his arguments were where he was was trying to, um, it, you know, this maybe, I'm going to try to put it delicately, explain away Russian behavior. Uh, this, this isn't about NATO, it's about restoring the aversion of the Russian Empire. Empire, and if every state on Russia's periphery were neutral and totally unarmed, it wouldn't be as though Russia would give up this this ambition. It, it would be even more ravenous <laughs> towards those towards those states. And then there's oh, you know, the Russians have always wanted a warm water port, and the the Black Sea is really important to them. True. Absolutely true, but they had this deal with the Ukrainians dating from 1997 to uh, to, to use uh, Sevastopol as the um, port for the Black Sea fleet. Then they took over all of Crimea. So you think the problem would, would be taken care of there? At the end of the day, it's not about securing Russian access to the Black Sea. It's about denying Ukraine access to the Black Sea. And th this is the ultimate kind of um, dual goal that that Putin has that makes this so difficult. One goal is to to end Ukraine's existence as a sovereign state and have it controlled by Russia, which might be out outside of its grasp. The, but the second goal is to destroy and, and to make Ukraine a failed state uh, a fail if they don't get to the first goal. And that, unfortunately, is achievable and, and something that, um, you know, they, they can keep uh, uh, hitting U Ukrainian infrastructure and power plants forever, you'd think. I suppose I don't understand this idea that it would be okay if we came to a settlement where Russia got some of Ukraine. How would that be an acceptable outcome? In what other context would we would we accept that? I mean, would we give up part of the United States if it were invaded or part of France? I'm confused by this. I share the fears that many have outlined that it will go on forever, that we'll end up spending huge amounts of money that we don't have without offsets, that we will get more and more involved. I think on a recent podcast, I pointed out that we are escalating. It's not unreasonable for Russia to see us as becoming gradually more tightly involved because we are. But I'm starting to see people say, well, we should encourage the Ukrainians to take a deal, but that deal seems to be that Russia gets some of their country. Am I wrong? 
No, I think that would definitely be part of the the, the deal. And I'll I'll let Phil come in because you know he he's uh, has thoughts on this as well. I would just say, um, just as a matter of realism, I, I don't think we're restoring Ukraine's uh, former borders. I, I think we've already basically given up the the Crimea, and I think the war is, is so costly and so uh, dangerous, I'd be willing to, um, you know, it's easy for me to say, right, I'm not Ukrainian, I'd be willing to cede Ukrainian uh, territory to, to get an end to it. And it's just, Ukraine's not the United States, so I would never, ever, you know, I would fight to my dying breath, uh, not to give up an inch of the United States to, to anyone. Um, but this is but this is a, a different animal. But Phil, as as the the more the most dovish um, person on this podcast, what's your take on that? I mean, I think that the question is sort of more along the lines of what is the end game and what is taking you know this five years down the road. How is that result different? I mean, unless willing to use our all of the force of the United States, like. You say, well, it's unacceptable for Ukraine to ever negotiate and give up any of its territory, but at what cost? So, in other words, are we going to just spend trillions to prevent that? Do we? Well, do we send? So, to me, the the problem with the the sort of you know open ended commitment to Ukraine argument is sort of just not accepting what the reality of the situation is. In the one hand, you say it's unacceptable that Russia would take any um, territory of Ukraine in any sort of settlement. Well, is the alternative, is it important enough to prevent that, that the U.S. is going to send troops to to fight Russians to avoid that outcome? So I agree with much of what you've just said. And I'll add another objection to an open-ended involvement in this. And that is that in my estimation, if we're being realists about this, which we should be, a far greater threat to the world and to the United States lies in a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And the more money we spend here and the more time we spend here, the less we are focused on that and the less we are prepared for that. I'm not making the case here for a American involvement that is uh, endless. I suppose the reason I ask this question is that I find it really difficult to square this idea with the rhetoric that we have heard from the United States government, from President Biden, from many within the foreign policy establishment, and from other governments. I can't reconcile all of those Ukrainian flags everywhere on Twitter and outside people's houses, all of that Churchillian rhetoric, with the notion that we would say, all right, fine, Russia, I suppose you've half won. And I don't know how we're going to do that. I, I just, I can't see how we're going to achieve that. But, you know. We've backed ourselves into a corner, haven't we? But that, my, my problem is, I guess what I'm saying is that a lot of the people who are all in on Ukraine are essentially not putting their money where their mouth is. Because on the one hand, they're saying it's unacceptable for Russia to benefit at all from this. Anything short of victory is is sort of an unacceptable result but at the same time oh well obviously we don't want direct we don't want direct clashes with russia and obviously we're not going to try to have a no fly zone and obviously we're not going to do this and to me i feel like that there's a tension between those two things because if your position is we there's a moral imperative to support ukraine whatever it takes to drive back russia it's you're not really doing whatever it takes whatever it takes is really whatever mm-hmm. it takes and so i just don't think i think people want to make the sort of moral case for supporting ukraine and still say that well we're being realistic about not going too far and i feel like over time it's getting harder and harder to maintain those two positions 
and that there's a natural uh, tension between them. Yeah. Also, I mean, we, we passed this threshold in 2014, right? When they took Crimea and sliced off a uh, part of eastern Ukraine, it wasn't like we were going to fight to the, the death to take no, that back. But, but again, there is a rhetorical difference in that we did not see the mobilization of all international elite opinion in defense yeah. of Crimea. I'm not arguing for an open-ended intervention. I'm saying that I can't see how we can... Yeah, um, no, I, I take your point. <laughs> I would think, Charlie, how about this? I mean, I, th I think it's been o overly, the rhetoric around this has been overly moralistic, which is a, like a, you know, part of American exceptionalism. We do it all the time and overly absolutist. And the way I, I've sort of looked at some of the Biden administration's rhetoric is, well, I don't think they mean it. They're not going to mean it. And in the end of the day, if they can get a deal short of, you know, restoring all of Ukraine, they're going to they're going to take it. And and um, that's that's the way the world works. And um, sometimes governments say things they don't entirely mean. Sure, sure. So, um, so Jim, do you want to do you want to re reach uh, you want to have a final statement to wrap a bow around this one? Yeah, I mean, look, this is. I think the heart of Joe Biden, that he wants to be Winston Churchill, but he doesn't like thinking too hard about the details and the commitments and the sacrifices that go with that. Uh, I think a portion of the uh, reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine stems from the uh, perception, sorry, most Democrats over the last six years were not mad at Trump for the possibility of him doing things to help Putin. They were mad at Putin for the possibility of doing things that could help Trump, right? The, the locus mm -hmm. of evil in the Democratic mm -hmm. mind is whoever the most prominent Democrat is. And so all kinds of Democrats who had nothing to say and were completely applauding Barack Obama and who scoffed at Mitt Romney saying Russia was our preeminent geopolitical foe. Uh, all of a sudden turned into, you know, Joe McCarthy, Red Hunters, right, who were absolutely furious at Russia. And, you know, everybody, Russian agents were behind every corner. Biden gets into office and almost immediately he starts talking about how he wants security and stability and predictability with the uh, with Vladimir Putin. Gets thrown out the window, clank, clank, clank. You can almost hear all of that tough on, rhetor on Russia rhetoric disappear. So Biden does extend his hand and then Biden, uh, then Putin bites, bites it off with a, with a full-scale invasion. I think Biden actually looks kind of foolish for his treatment of Biden. And for the, I think Biden looks foolish for his treatment of Putin in the first year. And I think from the very beginning, we have a president whose instincts are actually kind of dovish. That's one of the reasons I have a really tough time believing that Seymour Hirsch story. You basically have to have Joe Biden looking like, you know, David Palmer authorizing Jack Bauer to get into a dive. So really quickly, what, what's the Seymour Hirsch story? Well, that the U.S. Uh, blew up the Nord Stream 2 pipelines and planned to do it like back in November. Um, and that this is this unbelievably, you know, this uh, ex secret uh, uh, underwater operation that required the cooperation of the Norwegians, Swedes, and Denmark. And none of those governments leaked. All those governments went along. There was a de facto unilateral act of war against Russia. And oh, by the way, probably Germany, since they were the ones who were supposed to benefit from the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But Joe Biden, he had the guts. He had the willingness. The guy who would, didn't want to launch the Osama bin Laden mission was willing to do this, un, this you know, in-your-face direct strike at Russia. Well, he has been all Top Gun Maverick on the unidentified flying objects, Jim. So that yeah, after it crossed the country. Biden is really <laughs> tough long after the fact, when it, you know, long after it will do any good. Um, so in the end, I think, in the you know, Joe Biden is a classic creature of Washington. He's a weather vane, and he's constantly making promises he can't keep. And what he saw at the State of the Union saying to the Ukrainian ambassador is just a classic example of that. Nothing Biden right. says actually means all that much. All right. So I, I think I actually have an exit question that, that I'm, I'm, I'm proud of. I think Charlie's going to say, no, Rich, it's not nebulous enough. But uh, I'm going to try it out on you, Phil, first. So, so no, accept the premises just for the, the, the sake of the fun of answering this question. If you had the choice between aiding Ukraine at the same level we are now for five more years or just letting uh, Russia take Kiev and just like, you know what, sorry, too expensive, too risky, we can't do it. Which of those two? Those are your two choices. Which of those two do you take? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I need it. I feel it's a good one. I, it's a good one. Kirk, Captain Kirk in the, in the Kobiak room. Um, I think that what I would do is try to see if we could offset spending somewhere else by cutting other uh, programs and other parts of the military budget. Um, and if that 
is feasible and I'm able to do that, I might support um, continuing to, uh, to help them. All right, so we got a conditional yes out of Phil. Charlie. Yeah. And I'm with Phil in that I don't think we can keep spending money that we don't have. But the federal government primarily exists to run a military and deal with international affairs. The United States is in a preeminent position internationally, and that means that a lot of what happens in the world directly affects our interests. I'm not of the view that anything that could be cast as a military or diplomatic matter should, by definition, create a claim on the taxpayers. But I do not think the federal government does what it is supposed to do. And in the situation you described, I would rather make room elsewhere in order to facilitate American involvement than uh, than I would ignore it and say, well, sorry, we're spending on other things. Okay, so we have a, a slightly more robust yes from Charlie Jim Garrity. So I definitely abandoned, you know, Kiev is not really an option. So kind of by default, I go in the other direction. Spending at the current level for the next five years. Um, in that scenario, Rich, can you give me any guarantees or any sense of the effectiveness of, of spending that money? Like, are we basically wiping out, slowly but surely wiping out the Russian army? Uh, I don't know. I think you're, sta you're staving off defeat. But I guess I, I'm, I'm positing an, an, end, an end to the conflict in five years, uh, you know, a, a negotiated end to the conflict in five years. So I guess I'm, so that, then the question is, are you delaying the inevitable that, that basically under the lines that are, exist right now? I think um, I'll, I'll answer um, the way I think about it, and then then you can come in with your with your answer. I think it's it's clearly a yes. I, I just think a total Russian victory, which is what taking Kiev would be, is is too risky. Um, it it would uh, the the appetite would grow with the eating, and you could be faced with with you know a, a legit. World War III is overused. I mean, it wouldn't be a world war, uh, presumably, unless China came in. But, you know, a real no-kidding conflict between NATO uh, and Vladimir Putin if he, if he goes for his next target. So I think 30, what is it, 30 billion a year, basically, for the next five years? Yes, I, I think that, uh, that that would be worth it to get even, even you know, not Ukrainian victory, but just some, something along, you know, the uh, the, the, the lines, uh, the February, I keep on forgetting the act, actual date, but the something like the lines before this latest invasion of Ukraine, I think, yes, that would be, that would be worth it. So in that scenario, um, if this ends up, Draw, you know, uh, turning into a lengthy, muddy, messy bloodbath that leaves the Russian military a shell of its former self and is no longer capable of threatening the rest of Eastern Europe, including our NATO allies, then that accomplishes a U.S. Uh, you know objective. And I think the other qu interesting question is, does watching this turn into a messy bloodbath count because of the actions of NATO uh, does that affect China's decision making regarding mm -hmm. Taiwan at all? So if there's a deterrent effect that may very well be, you know, uh, effectively cheap uh, if you can, you know, influence the thinking of Xi Jinping. So in that sense, yeah, it'd be, you know, if you get those objectives, then it feels more worthwhile. Yeah. All right. So so we have forms of yeses. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, to be clear, I'm saying, you know, basically, if you're taking over Kiev and essentially Russia takes over the, is essentially saying Russia takes over all of Ukraine. I wouldn't necessarily answer the same way if it was the previous uh, question and the more likely scenario, which is that Russia takes over some Ukrainian territory. That might be a different experience. Yeah, yeah. No, the the, the, the assumption of the, the, the question, though, was le, le, between Russian total victory and th this kind of... Uh, drawdown of our stocks of weapons and this kind of ex expense for the next five years. So, uh, NR Plus, let me do a quick plug. If you like the discussion you just heard on Ukraine, which I thought was fantastic, you should sign up for NR Plus because this is what we do at National Review all the time. We're not monochromatic. We're not scared of internal debate. In fact, we enjoy internal uh, debate. I can come in and say, you know what, we need a trillion dollar defense budget. And Phil can come, come in and say, no, you're crazy. 
<laughs> we, we can't afford it. Uh, MBD can say we need to destroy the tech companies and Charlie can say, no, MBD, you're crazy. And we can debate it and uh, have fun doing it and, and hopefully uh, shed, shed some more light on whatever issue we're talking about. So if that's the kind of journalism you enjoy, you don't get it many places. Everyone's in their little uh, tribal uh, tents. Uh, and, and we try to have the biggest tent uh, possible. So take this opportunity. Go sign up for NR+. Plus. Lots of good first-time deals going at any given moment and a really important way to support our valuable journalism. So let's go straight to a lighter note. Jim Garrity, we had Super Bowl Sunday, this great American festival. Exit question to you. Rate the overall... Super Bowl as an entertainment package. I'm talking everything. I'm talking the all-female flyover. I'm talking the Chris Stapleton uh, national anthem. I'm talking the halftime show. I'm talking the game itself. From zero, total bust, boring, the commercials stank and weren't interesting, or 10. It's hard to imagine how the NFL could have done any better. Uh, I think they were about one holding penalty uh, away, which I think was legit, but I think that you didn't call it the rest of the game, which makes it tougher to call when the whole game is on the line. Uh, I put it at eight or nine. It was it was very close to a perfect one. Also, a lot of people, so a lot of people gave, you know, noted and, you know, maybe some people rolled up their eyes at the announcement that it was the first all-female pilot team doing the military <laughs> flyover. What people didn't realize is that immediately after the flyover, they were diverted north to deal with more UFOs. <laughs> they should have shot a balloon down over the stadium. <laughs> that that would have been perfect. <laughs> Phil Klein. Um, I, I'd say in terms of the game, I mean, look, I watch the Super Bowl for the game. I don't really care. I, you know, make food and go to the bathroom during commercials. So I skip the halftime show usually. So, but for the game, I thought it was an eight, uh, eight or nine. I love seeing the Eagles lose, and particularly in disappointment. And I just think that, I mean, I push back a little with Jim insofar as saying, like, look, it, he did hold him. So the only question is, do you call it in that situation? And the bottom line is Eagles fans were whining about this call and saying it was not a decisive call. I mean, even if the call, if the there's no penalty, the Eagles still have to drive downfield, get a, a field goal, and stop Mahomes in uh, overtime. So it was far from as decisive as some other really bad blown call. Yeah, but it was an important call. I, I would just, it seems to me, though, if the game, okay, I, I accept your premise. It, I think it was important, but let's not, we won't say the game was on the line. But it's a really important call. It seems to me more important to call it when it's a penalty. <laughs> you know, Mahomes is pointing at the guy because it was a clear hold. You yeah, know? I mean, nobody's disputing even him, like the player who held the shirt. Nobody's disputing that you hold it. He just said, I hope they just let me off. And again, the Eagles didn't stop the Chiefs from scoring didn't record a defensive stop the whole second half. They were supposed to be this great defense. They didn't sack Mahomes once the whole game. So it's hard mm -hmm. to perform that way and then whine about one holding call, um, which to the credit, the Eagles themselves were very gracious about it and said not making a, a deal about the call. Um, but, you know, the Eagles fans were you know, characteristically sour and whiny <laughs> about it. So in some sense, I'm kind of glad th about the call because it, <laughs> made it, <laughs> it made it even better that there was a marginal call that might have decided the game that went against the Eagles. Charlie Cook, 0 to 10. Well, I thought it was a nine, and I, I'm not subtracting the one because the Jacksonville Jaguars were not mm -hmm. in the Super Bowl. I'm subtracting the one because the commercials weren't great, with the exception yeah. of one. I thought everything else was terrific. I thought the game was terrific. I thought the national anthem was terrific. And you know what fascinated me? The day after, I saw right-wingers saying, that was a great patriotic Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. Suck it, libs. But I also read a piece in The Guardian that said this was the woke Super Bowl with the two black quarterbacks, who might be surprised to learn their work for what it's worth, the black national anthem, the female pilot yeah. troop. 
Well, what that tells me, other than that people need to get a life and stop filtering everything through politics, is that everyone liked it. If people on the left thought that this was some woke extravaganza and people on the right thought that this was rah-rah America, then we all liked it as a country. It really is the one thing we can all watch together. So Yeah, um, I totally agree. uh, That was terrific. Yeah, I posted about that yesterday. It seemed this was the American mainstream, you know, the parts of it that we might not like, but they weren't hugely offensive uh, to anyone. And that it worked that way for for both sides. I'm an eight. I, I subtract for the halftime show. I, I just, uh, you know, I'm not the biggest halftime show guy, but uh, for a lot of people, that's the point of it. You know, that's when my wife really comes in and sits down and, and pays attention. And it was it was terrible. Um, and the commercials weren't that great, but everything else just fantastic from the the Johnny Cash old ragged flag um, prior to the game to the Chris Stapleton performance of the national anthem just epic just to to have grown men in tears whoa what a performance and then the game you know the Eagles didn't really do anything wrong offensively they had a big uh, fumble six obviously they punted just twice the whole game one bad punt that uh, came back to to bite them, but the defense didn't hold. But the, just at the end of the day, they're beaten by a truly great quarterback in the form of Patrick Mahomes. So um, NFL has gotten a lot of criticism uh, in recent years. They, they deserve uh, a bunch of pats on the back for this one. It's an eight. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity, one thing, another thing you enjoyed about the Super Bowl is uh, it gives an excuse for uh, midwinter, mid-February sociability. Yeah, so I have a theory that if you had any introverted instincts, the pandemic uh, was like, you know, gasoline on a fire. Uh, You know, particularly as you get older, that sense of, dude, do you want to go out? Do you want to hang out with people? Boy, doesn't that couch look good? You know, what's on TV? What's on streaming services? The urge to not go out and not interact with people. Yes, it's always easier. Yes, there's, you know, all all these reasons in your head you can come up with why you don't want to go and hang out with people. Well, you can watch the Super Bowl by yourself, but generally that's not so much fun. Generally, it's more fun to be around other people and cheering and, you know, oh, here comes this commercial. Oh, it's a trailer for this. You know, the Indiana Jones trailer looked almost good. And I've having been so burned by Crystal Skull. I don't, you know, I want to believe, but I don't know if I believe. Um, I think basically the Super Bowl is just perfectly timed. It's been a while since the holidays. Uh, It's not, you know, winter's not yet over. This gives us a reason to go out, get together on a Sunday night. My only complaint, I do believe they should start the game earlier. You know, my, my kids have never really gotten to see the end of the game. Um, usually they're in bed by sometime in the early in the second half. The you know, halftime show goes on forever. You know, there are little ways you can make the Super Bowl better, but I do think it kind of provides this important kind of midwinter get together for everybody when it's a time of year where I think a lot of people would rather be hibernating. Phil Klein, speaking of hibernating, you've been hibernating and watching Swedish arty films. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> we liked it better when you were on the, the beef kick. But every episode you talk about cooking some form of beef. Now it's now it's these uh, arty foreign films. Yeah. So I was I was chatting with um, our former colleague Kyle Smith, and he had mentioned about his favorite films of twenty two, and he had mentioned this film Triangle of Sadness, which was. Um, directed by a Swedish director, although it was an English language film. And I wanted to see it, but I figured before I saw it, I wanted to see the Swedish director's other movies. Um, So I ended up watching all three over the last few weeks. Um, And it's just really, he's just really a brilliant satirist. Um, A lot of stuff in this sort of realm of White Lotus in terms of sort of mocking the the uber rich um but it's just sort of really cleverly done uh his first movie was called force majeure and it takes place at the sort of elite um uh uh resort in the alps and basically they think there's an avalanche coming and the dad runs for the hills basically and leaves his wife with her two kids. And it turns out to not really be an avalanche, uh, but it sort of ends up leading to this, all this conflict um, over a seemingly simple uh, situation. And it's just really well done. So I'm sort of enjoyed my 
you know, um, going down the uh, the path of watching Swedish satire. Yes, I think your your ultimate light item would be if you cooked some piece of beef for 36 hours and during that time period engaged in your own private Norwegian film festival where you watched every major uh, Norwegian film ever made. Charlie Cook, you have, uh, oh, you enjoyed the electric car ad. It was one of the, the good ads. <laughs> the, well, the one good ad, I thought. There's so many lazy ads where they didn't have an idea. They just got a celebrity in it. I was put in mind of that scene in Mad Men where Don Draper is berating the ad executive for the idea of a celebrity endorsement. He says, that's lazy. Celebrity endorsements are lazy. It can work if there's a good script, of course. But if you just say, well, we'll have them in. But this ad didn't have any celebrities in it. And it was a parody of, I guess, erectile dysfunction ads, except with electric cars. It was extremely funny and well done. But also it was very clever because it took on, head on, people's worry about electric cars. I'm not talking about my anti-electric car sentiment. I mean, the actual things that consumers say about electric cars. I'm worried that, you know, it won't go far enough. What about if we take the kids up to Maine? Uh, when we have to stop for 20, 30 minutes at a time. And in that regard, it reminded me of an ad for the car company Skoda, which was, uh, I think, a Soviet company that, after the Soviet Union fell, decided to sell cars uh, again. And, of course, they had the reputation that they had picked up during the Cold War, and their ads just made fun of it, straight up. They said, you won't believe this is a Skoda. And they noted that historically they had been uh, they had been a joke uh, and now explained why they weren't. Uh, I don't have any great brief for electric cars, but I have to say that sort of ad is worth 10,000 lectures <laughs> about the environment. It's worth 10,000 Jennifer Granholm answers. It's worth 10,000 Pete Buttigieg subsidies. Uh, it, it was clever and I suspect somewhat effective. So, Charlie, if you had a choice between taking a train or commuting by electric car, which would you take? Well, I would obviously take the electric car because I'm not a communist. <laughs> so the, the Super Bowl is a bit of a landmark for me because I ate solid food again. I've had this chewing problem since basically... November, which has uh, meant a, a lot of soup and a lot of um, protein drinks, and it's beginning to get better. But let me tell you, it doesn't go over very well when your wife makes a nice uh, dinner and you sit sit down at the table with a protein drink in, in front of you. So hopefully that, uh, that time is ending. So it's that time in the podcast for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? Rich, circle the calendar. I am selecting Biden versus the UFOs. Uh, your recent column wow. went up this morning. Now, here's the thing. I think, you know, actually, I feel like the headline is almost a little, I don't want to say misleading, but like in the end, we're not really dealing, you know, when you say UFOs, people are thinking aliens. Come on, and some of my best headlines are misleading. Yeah. Um, but I, there's one, one paragraph here that I feel like uh, really kind of, you know, gets at the heart of this is that one purpose of the brazen Chinese overflight obviously might have been to test Joe Biden's mettle. Um, the new Top Gun Maverick posture towards myriad other identified objects seems like an implicit acknowledgement that the first response when it really mattered was too slow. That's the other aspect I feel like isn't getting nearly enough attention is what was China trying to do here? What Were they trying to send a message to us? Were they testing us? And it's very hard to believe that, you know, President Biden has passed that test. Phil Klein, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is uh, – piece by Philip Magnus on uh, the mm -hmm. 1619th Project's capitalism episode. Um, he's just been so great at just debunking and, and explaining the actual history um, behind, uh, you know, you know, that sort of counters the, the revisionist narrative that's being promoted by the 1619 Project. And, it's just they're sort of trying to take it um, to a new audience with this Hulu series, which has just been a complete disaster. And, and he's just really just does a great job of explaining why uh, they get it wrong. Yeah, he's a one man wrecking ball and she clearly hates him. Charlie. I am going to pick 
post by Andy McCarthy joining with Dominic Pino and savaging you, Rich, for Uh-oh. becoming, in Andy's words, a Marxist when it comes to baseball rules. Andy is, and not only in response to you, but in response to the MLB uh, chief head honcho, Rob Manfred, spitting fire at some of the new rules and the schedule changes. The, the schedule changes so are bad. I'll, I'll, I'll give them that. Yeah, I, I just love this, uh, this angsty reaction in Andy, uh, who usually applies his expertise and passion to the law, but here has started throwing grenades at baseball and and he ends it and you can just imagine him saying it he ends it with a i i i well let's just say i love this game and they're just killing it mm-hmm. and if you know andy you can imagine him saying it yeah. with that combination of uh, irritation and the smile that he always has on his face yeah there's one series late in the season where the yankees are playing the brewers i think actually maybe it was the series that judge got to 59 but uh, they're wearing the Brewers are wearing these weird kind of bowling alley type uniforms, these yellow uniforms with some words on it. You know that seem to have no connection to the Brewers. Like, why are we doing this? Why why are we playing the Brewers when we could play some uh, respectable AL East team? My pick is by my former uh, professor at the University of Virginia, Michael Eshelman. A review in the new issue of two new books about Shakespeare, and Michael is just. Uh, typically uh, erudite and profound in discussing uh, these these books and Shakespeare's legacy. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast in your rebroadcast, retransmission, or countless game without the express written permission of National Review Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to Tommy John and Moink. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.